This week on a lively experiment, a changing of the guard at the Rhode Island State House as Governor Raimondo is going to Washington. And Donald Trump is impeached for an historic second time with just days left in his presidency. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us to break it all down, attorney and legal analyst Lou Polner, Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, and Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. Well, to the surprise of virtually no one, Governor Raimondo accepted President-elect Biden's invitation to become her Commerce Secretary in Washington. And although Raimondo and her successor, Lieutenant Governor Dan McKee, tried to create a kumbaya moment on Wednesday, this relationship has been strained for many years. They put on a good face, but it raises a lot of questions about how this transition is going to go and when that's actually going to take place. We don't know right now, but they tried to fill in a few of the gaps. Um, Lisa, let me begin with you. I was actually thinking back to the Almond years because it hasn't always been this bad. Uh, Bob Wagan was lieutenant governor for part of Link Almond's um, tenure. I wonder, though, looking forward, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Is it going to be his budget? Is it going to be Raimondo's? What are the priorities going forward? Well, I think we know the most important piece of legislation that goes through the General Assembly every year is the budget. And the budget process takes a number of months to go through to work with the departments, to work with your revenue estimating, to know how much money that you have coming in. So here we have our current governor who's been working on the budget about to pass it off to our incoming uh, governor. And what we don't know is how schooled is he in in budget process. So what we've learned or what we've heard is that uh, her budget is just about ready to go, yet the General Assembly has given her until early March to submit it. So is, are we going to have a Ramundo budget that McKee is going to have to steward going forward, or will he have the ability to put his priorities in? And Bill, it raises questions. The governor was very big on the Rhode Island Promise, the taxpayer-funded tuition for CCRI, Nick Mattiello, who's now gone, the car tax phase out, and you're looking at this big sea of red ink. So I wonder what you think about, because I think McKee's probably going to have different priorities going forward, as Lisa said. Well, I mean, let's be candid about how the budget uh, is handled every year, uh, including uh, this year, which is that the governor, uh, Raimondo at this point, will submit a budget, and the budget really becomes the budget of the legislature, right? I mean, we all know that the legislature takes a draft document from the governor, and this has been true under Republican governors and Democratic governors, and then the House, under the new speaker, will put together an alternative budget, usually with significant modifications to the draft that's submitted from the governor. And then they'll seek the input from the Senate and the legislature will then come out with a budget that will be partially based on what they was given from the governor. And I'm sure that based on uh, what it looks like so far, that there will be uh, attention given to some things that incoming Governor McKee feels our priorities that he wants to see addressed. So that's what's going to happen. I don't think it will be dramatically different than any other year. It, you know, the estimates are that we're looking at a, a significant uh, deficit, which won't come as a shock to anybody based on, you know, the whole COVID mess. 
Um, so they're going to have to deal with that. They're going to have to make some tough decisions. But the process won't be dramatically different, if, if at all different, than any other year, frankly. Lou, what are you going to be looking for? I do want to see whether or not the uh, lieutenant governor, governor-to-be, is going to make uh, put an imprint on, on that budget, and whether it's in the form of charter schools, which has always been a, a pet of his, uh, or some other. I think he wants to make a statement. I mean, he's got two years before he's running for governor, and I think this is an opportune time, a blessing if you're in his camp, uh, to be able to do something that sends a message that I'm here and I'm, I'm prepared to stay. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious to see how it all falls off. Bill, one thing that uh, this may be just the insider baseball, the reporters yesterday, Gina Raimondo has made herself, she, she noted that it was her 125th briefing going back to March. She snuck out the door. We tried to you know, ask some questions. If you're going to be governor, are you going to answer questions? They, they very carefully scripted it. I heard the same went on with Marty Walsh up in Boston, who's usually very accessible. I wonder if you think this is coming from the Biden administration or whether they're just being a little careful about because the governor has had no problems talking to us and fielding any question we have. And it seemed like a real departure yesterday. Well, I don't know if I would consider or say that she snuck out the door. I mean, she, she did. Clearly, she, she clearly did. She not. left. We yelled at her, and the reporters were waiting for her outside, like we were at federal right, court. She and she get, blew them she off. She didn't get down on her hands and knees and crawl out the door so nobody could see her. I mean, she she didn't want to answer any questions at that point. And I think there were two reasons for that. I would I would surmise, and I don't know either to be completely true. One is that she is trying, and I think to her credit to move quickly along with the transition to Lieutenant Governor and soon to be Governor McKee. And I think that that is to her credit, number one. Uh, Governor, I'm already calling him Governor McKee, but Lieutenant Governor McKee was having a public uh, press event this morning to deal with the press, answer questions, et cetera. And I think, I think that Governor Raimondo has tried to diplomatically not step on his toes or, or make that transition start to happen. And secondarily, I'm sure that there is some uh, impetus from Washington that they would prefer, the Biden uh, camp would prefer uh, Governor Raimondo, Marty Walsh, and others who are soon to join the Biden administration to sort of make that segue into Washington and try to start, you know, lessening their involvement, what they're doing all over the country where they're presently located. So I think it's probably a little bit of both, um, but no big surprise. Lisa? Uh, I, I think it was too dramatic, the change. You know, she gets tapped last week on Friday and she accepts it. And then this week, at the beginning of the week, we have um, the swearing-in ceremony for her choice for Supreme Court here in, in, in Rhode Island. And she wasn't at that ceremony. So I thought that was surprising. That was an important pick um, for her to do. She could have been, it was outside. She could have been part of it. She could have given formal remarks and she wasn't part of it. So I think there has to be that gradual transition from Governor Raimondo to Governor McKee. But now more than ever, especially at the start of a general assembly session, we're in the real depths of the pandemic, really trying to struggle with the vaccine, how to distribute it among Rhode Islanders. We need strong leadership. We need visible leadership. And I think that she needs to be out there more. I know the Biden camp obviously vetted her for we heard for vice president and th through the cabinet, they chose her. They don't want to be in the position of her doing anything now that they would have to withdraw her nomination. So I can see them telling her, telling all their nominees, kind of tamp it down until you get uh, approved by the Senate. 
And just finally, Lou, we hadn't seen her since two days before Christmas. If you think about it, there was the break and then she was in quarantine and then she went to Wilmington last week for the official announcement. So I think a lot of people, regardless of the politics of it, wanted to hear from her about what's going on with the pandemic because the numbers don't look good. No, they don't. And, you know, Lisa just said, no, here we are in the depths of the throes of the pandemic. Who would have thought we'd be saying that last March? Uh, but yes, uh, here we go again. And the next three months promise not to be any better than the last three. Uh, I think that the way she, and I'm going to agree with you, Hummel, uh, she did. She slinked out of there uh, for the sake of just not having to answer any questions. And at the same breath, she's saying, I'm still the governor. I'm going to run the state and I will be here as your governor until I can no longer be here. Well, that comes with the whole panoply of obligations, including speaking to the press and just walking away. Uh, and by the way, the, the ironic part here is that, I mean, McKee has to have sticker shock. I mean, he was treated like the redheaded stepchild, forgive me, Hummel, forever and ever and ever. And now all of a sudden, you know, she's giving him a platform uh, and at the same time bowing out. It's, it's, there's something wrong there. And I just can't put my finger on it. But I think you've done that, Hummel. By the way, though, I would remind you that yesterday was Governor Raimondo's 125th public press conference since last March. So to, to, to leave anybody with the impression that somehow she hasn't been transparent upfront in dealing with this pandemic is, is obviously would not be accurate. No, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, Bill. She's been a good governor. She's done what she can. She's been out front. She's been the voice of, of, of what we needed from her. And uh, I, give her, <laughs> I give her high marks for that. But the way she handled it yesterday was just, it, it didn't make any sense at all. So, Bill, duly noted, you will take issue with the word slink, duly noted, and I will take issue was, with the phrase. I was going to let Lou off the hook there, but technically he did not agree with you because you said she snuck out. He said she slinked out. Well, so I will take really issue with, agree with I will take issue with redheaded stepchild. Let's try to keep that off lively experiment. All right. Not as red had, as it used to be. I hadn't heard that since middle school back at okay. St. Joe's. Lou, Lou goes deep sometimes. All right. Uh, one other thing that we uh, we definitely need to talk about is the rollout of the vaccination. It's been slow. Some of that's because of the federal level. So I figured to set the table for this discussion, we talked to the point person at the Department of Health. You have seen him at some of the briefings, Dr. Philip Chan. And here's what he had to say about where Rhode Island is right now on the vaccine. The vaccine planning here at the Rhode Island Department of Health has been happening for five or six plus months. I think what's made it complicated is that we didn't know how many doses we were going to receive. We didn't know when vaccine was going to be approved, et cetera. So there's been a lot of unknowns, and that's made planning really tough. But frankly, uh, a lot of the different populations as part of phase 1A are being vaccinated now. You know, we're really at the mercy of the federal government and the vaccines being delivered to us. We're getting about 14,000 uh, vaccines a week. And so right now we're vaccinating about 2,000 people a week. Uh, which means that we're vaccinating at the same rate now that we're getting vaccine in. We're doing as good as we can uh, at the moment. We are in the top 10 in terms of states of rates uh, of vaccination, so we're doing a, a really good job in that regard. I think it's normal for these viruses to have some variations, some mutations. That's normal. It's what these viruses do. And we're going to have to see what happens. Obviously, the concern would be if a variant evolved that's resistant to this vaccine. Uh, and Rhode Island in general has had a really robust vaccination program. I mean, we've, we have one of the, t the highest vaccination rates for many other vaccines uh, in the country. And we've built off that to deliver the COVID vaccine. We were 
initially envisioning several uh, thousand more doses, um, and we were given a little bit less than that by the federal government. So we had planned on moving a little bit faster. The timeline that we are hearing about and, and messaging uh, is sort of the, the conservative timeline, and we're hopeful that vaccine will actually get out to people much sooner than we expect. I think the number that struck me, Bill, was 2,000 people a week. I mean, by that point, you and I will probably get the vaccine, although you're a little older than I am, uh, the vaccination in 2023. I mean, that's clearly got to get ramped up. And I wonder whether change of administration does that. Well, I'd say two things. Number one, I think that Rhode Island will continue to uh, improve its uh, rollout, although I think they've done a relatively good job, uh, comparatively speaking, so far. But let's lay the blame where it should be, which is in Washington. I mean, you heard it right there from, from our local Rhode Island expert that, that the federal government just fell down on the job with respect to the vaccine and the rollout. I don't know how anybody could be surprised at that after what we've seen from President Trump uh, for the past few weeks, never mind the past few months. He basically quit his job months ago in terms of actually governing and went off on this Don Quixote, insane, idiotic, plight to try to claim that the election was stolen and it's consumed him and his administration. And as a consequence, we've all suffered across the country, including here in Rhode Island. And let me tell you, I went to a funeral yesterday of a, of a longtime friend of mine, Charlotte Tavares, a, a Rhode Island icon in the education community who died unfortunately from COVID and with no underlying health conditions. And I tell you, I'm, I'm sad for her family, but I'm angry because you know, I think that had President Trump done what he should have done back in last March, as Lou cited earlier, that we wouldn't still have people like Charlotte Tavares and tens of thousands of Charlotte Tavares all over the country still getting COVID at the rate that they're getting. And we wouldn't have thousands of people dying every day like it's still happening. And those deaths are on President Trump's hands. And there's no two ways around it. And that includes the the horrible rollout of the vaccine um, that he's, he's, there's no other way to put it. It's his fault, plain and simple, uh, and it'll be his legacy, frankly. No, I think that's just a little harsh. So let me just step in and um, do not like to be in the position to defend President Trump, but I think we should recognize that you know, COVID started at the beginning of last year. And for us to be able to have a vaccine that's been approved by our federal authorities and distributed by the end of this year, so less than you know, nine months of turnaround to have a vaccine, is really extraordinary that we, uh, we are in this position. So I do credit, I do credit President Trump to really put Operation Warp Speed into place and make it happen that we have a vaccine. I think what's so troubling is, is the dual issue. One, the public health, that we've had so many people die um, from COVID, but also the economy, how much our economy here is struggling. And I think we kept saying, once we have a widespread vaccine, then we'll be able to lift our economy again. So I think that's the added pressure that we want to have as many people as possible vaccinated so we can get our economy going again. Well, I would agree with Lisa 100% with respect to the scientists that have done an unbelievable job in coming up with this vaccine in the amount of time that they did. But I would also remind our listeners that we now know that President Trump knew that the extent of the coronavirus, not last March, but last November and December, and intentionally hid that information from the public and from his own medical people. And that without exception, every step of the way, he has denied the seriousness of, of the coronavirus. He's refused to listen to medical doctors and scientists who have had to marshal on without his assistance 
and it's been one mistake after another since day one. So um, I think that our doctors and our medical people have been fantastic. But if you listen to every single state official of any party across the country, it's, it's unmistakable that they say the cons with consensus of opinion that there has never been a national plan in place with respect to the coronavirus, including the rollout of the vaccine. And that buck stops on the, on the desk in the Oval Office where Donald Trump will be, looks like for another week. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree with both Lisa and Bill, uh, but Bill, you can't just say, uh, you know, he blew and attached to him the, the faulty rollout of the vaccinations and at the same time, uh, you know, not give him any credit for Operation Warp Speed. Uh, I, I guess, obviously, it goes directly to the, the scientists and the major companies that were willing to invest uh, in such a, a risky project because they could have spent years and gazillions of dollars with absolutely nothing. Uh, the fact is, is that you can't just uh, you can't just attack the president, and not give him credit where credit was due. Yes, as to the rest of it and the fallout, uh, yeah, that goes on his shoulders, and I have no problem with that. You know, it was interesting. I saw a 60 Minutes piece late. You know, we weren't thinking vaccine, and I told Dr. Chan this. I remember sitting over at the vets, and the governor, like, you know, early fall was talking about vaccine rollout, and I thought, well, that seems a little premature. Well, now we know that a lot of his planning's been going. There was a general on 60 Minutes who is the, and he has stepped forward, unlike the president, and said, look, I take responsibility for some of this uh, hiccup in terms of getting the vaccine out, but they had such an incredible plan and, I, and I'm a little unclear as to whether it's, is it Pfizer and Moderna that just aren't uh, kicking it out, or is it that they just physically can't get it from here to there and then shots in the arms? Has anybody heard one way or the other on that? Well, keep in mind, and I, I would say that, you know, obviously I'm very critical and I think justifiably of, of President Trump's leadership on this issue, but... I, I would also say that we have to acknowledge that this is the biggest, not only the biggest health risk in our lifetime for sure, but it also is requiring the biggest marshalling of forces to try to get the vaccine not only produced, which we're lucky to have, but to get it out. I mean, it's not a simple thing. I mean, I'm just a, a lawyer, but it's not a simple thing if you follow this to get this vaccine out to the entire world, by the way. We're not even talking about just trying to get it out across the United States, but the entire world. So it's a first for everybody. And, and I think that when you have an issue like this, you're gonna expect some bumps in the road. There's no way this vaccine's ever gonna get out fast enough to make everybody happy, I, I can assure you. Um, but I think under the circumstances, I think that there could have been a better uh, leadership and a better plan out of Washington. But I think the people, the the people that are on the front line trying to get this rollout, trying to deliver the vaccine, trying to get shots in people's arms, I think are doing the best they can. I agree. But the refrigeration requirement is certainly an impediment to rolling this out. What is it? How much below zero do they have to be maintained? Uh, which is absolutely, uh, it's mind boggling to think that we can actually get it to all these facilities and keep it at that refrigerated pace. Uh, prior to the time of actually giving the va uh, vaccinations. And I think that is problematic. And uh, now they're toying with the idea of saying, everyone's going to get one shot and we'll worry about the second shot later. I think that's absolutely stupid. We've done trials and trials on thousands, 50,000 people. And this is the way it works with the two doses. And now they're saying, well, maybe we're going to tinker with that. Don't tinker with that. 
get the refrigeration done, get the rollout done, and let's make it work the way it was supposed to. All right, we got a lot to talk about uh, in Washington. Let's do this. Let's do outrages or kudos first, and then we will get to that. Ms. Pelosi, do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? Um, I have a kudo. Um, in the past number of days, we've really had um, the desperate need to have statesmanship and leadership, especially come out of Washington um, and tamper down the, you know, the high rhetoric that's been going on. So this week, to see that um, New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick decided to decline accepting the presidential award of freedom from President Trump was just so welcoming to hear. Um, and it's extraordinary on so many levels because these two gentlemen, Belichick and President Trump, they've been friends for a number of years. Um, Bill Belichick has said that he supported President Trump as president. So for him to decline it and say the reason he was doing it because he was putting his country, his team and his players before himself was just so welcoming um, to hear this week. Great. Bill, what do you have? Well, a, I'll have a perfect segue from Lisa's because just on the opposite end of the spectrum, my comments would be my outrages at Senator Ted Cruz from Texas and this other uh, Senator Horley, who I think spells his name wrong. I think he should spell it W-H-O-R-E-L-Y. <laughs> um, because if you watch these two people um, and their despicable kowtowing uh, to Donald uh, Trump's, um, at least a portion of Donald Trump's supporters in the worst possible way. They have continued to con intentionally, knowingly, and voluntarily spread these incredible lies about the election, about the Democratic Party, and more so about our country and our democracy. And I think that they deserve a lot of the blame for the rioting and the deaths and the damage that was done, not only in Washington, but to our country and our constitution. And they clearly have sunk to a new low in a pathetic attempt to try to get this alt-right racist support on, on that wing of President Trump's supporters. And I think it's despicable and hopefully uh, as has been referenced by Senator Hawley's own local newspaper, the blood's also on their hands, and hopefully it'll come back to haunt them uh, come election day. All right, we'll discuss a lot more of that in just a second, Lou. Let me get to your outrage or kudo, and then we'll shift into Washington. Well, it's not, an, it's not so much an outrage as it is, well, go figure, it's Rhode Island. And that would be dealing especially with the fact that the lieutenant governor, as the situation stands now, has the authority to appoint his new lieutenant governor when he is the governor, in fact. And now we're hearing that the legislature wants to usurp that by changing the uh, the ground rules so that they can actually make the appointment for lieutenant governor. And I think that's just, you know, so Rhode Island It's like, no, the law is he gets to pick. And now you're saying, no, we're, we're above the law. Well, they got slapped down by Go Governor Raimondo uh, last time they tried to overstep their authority. And, uh, I don't think that uh, they should be doing this at this point in time, time. Yeah, I agree with you. It'd be a rush job. Some have talked about a special election. All right, let's segue into Washington. I mean, where do we begin? Uh, we will need more, so we're going to do a bonus lively extra online right after this. But Lisa, let me begin with you. The headline, who would have thought, we've got so much going on here in Rhode Island. The president gets impeached a second time. That kind of takes the backseat to the end of our discussion. But I wonder, as you look at this, it really is historic. It doesn't look like the Senate's going to get to a trial. Point blank, should the Senate go forward with a trial after the president leaves next week? 
Well, you know, this week there was a very compelling piece in the Washington Post by a former uh, judge on the Court of Appeals really questioning whether it's constitu constitutional to impeach a president after the president uh, leaves office. So I'm still, you know, I, you know, and of course we have lawyers on the panel, so I'll defer to you for the legal aspect of it. But um, I do question whether um, the, you know, the Senate should be able to go forward. If that is a possibility, will outgoing President Trump take it to the courts? And that will delay the Senate from their proceedings, too. So I think that's you know, a couple elements. But should he be, if the whole purpose of impeachment is to remove him from office, at 12.01 on January 20th, he is out of office, period. I agree with Lisa. I think that's a very significant question. And, and you have to keep in mind that I think more importantly, we need to get behind our new president. And as we all know, the first 100 days are very, very important uh, for just making a mark on, on, on what he wants to do for this country, uh, build better back or whatever the heck he's talking about. But the reality is, is that an impeachment only brings this country down further. Frankly, for my money, I would have liked to seen the 25th Amendment invoked. I think President Trump, after what he did, he should have been removed from office summarily, would have dispensed with all the need for the impeachment process and would not interfere with the 100 days of, of President Biden. Uh, I think that, uh, again, I've read the, the statute and, and the law on the uh, impeachment, and it is to impeach a sitting president. And if he's no longer president, I don't know if the Congress has the authority to go through with that any further. I'll defer to Bill if he knows more than I do on this. Well, I would say two things. Number one, he absolutely should be impeached and the Senate should be uh, do their job, have a trial and vote their conscience, number one. There also has been an impeachment, not of a president, but there, have been, uh, there has been an impeachment of a federal office holder after that office holder left office. So I think there's some precedent that that will happen. It'll probably end up before the court, which is fine and the court can make a decision. but. The, 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 I just don't subscribe to this uh, notion that, look, he's almost done. Uh, let's get him out of there and move on. I mean, tell that to the Capitol Police officer's family who got pepper sprayed and then beaten to death with a fire extinguisher inside the United States Congress. The president as Liz Cheney, and believe me, I, I can't imagine that I would agree with Liz Cheney on anything at this point in our respective careers except that I agree with her 100% with her comments with respect to President Trump, that he was the sole person that was responsible for what took place with the rioting, calling these people to arms. And by the way, as we tape this program, there's an ongoing investigation of a lot of the details of what happened inside the Capitol. And we're gonna find out a lot more in the days and weeks ahead about this having been a planned attack these people were storming and looking to hang uh, the vice president, by the way. This was not a partisan attack. This was an attack on the United States of America and on democracy. These people were looking to hang the vice president, kill the Speaker of the House. I mean, it's outrageous. And they ought to be treated as terrorists, which is what they are. They ought to be indicted and, and hopefully incarcerated to the highest extent possible. And the president ought to be held to account. And the way to hold him to account irrespective of whatever criminal charges he may face after he leaves office, is for the Congress, including the Senate, to do their job, impeach him, have a trial, and vote your conscience. All right, let's do this. It's never enough time, but you know what, folks? That's why we created Lively Extra. Right now, you can go online at RIPBS. 
uh, slash lively and check out our panel because we got a lot more to say. But for now, for TV, that's all the time we have. So Bill and Lou and Lisa, it's the quickest uh, 30 minutes in television. We appreciate your time. And folks, again, check out Lively Extra and come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.